0: One day he said, I want you to come down to this rehearsal space. I want you to play saxophone on one song. It's called Dressing Up. And if you can play dut da da on a sax, which I could certainly do, <laughs> then just come down and play that.
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Live Through That, the podcast where influential artists of the 80s and 90s talk to us about a pivotal moment in their lives. I'm your host, Mike Hippel, and we're continuing a month of stories from artists that are going to be performing at the Cruel World Festival in Pasadena on May 20th. This week's guest is Marty Girard from the band The Motels. Marty is a native of Gainesville, Florida, and joined his first band when he was 15. By 1976, he moved to where all the action was happening, Los Angeles, and joined the motels shortly thereafter. Today, he tells us about those early days. ¶¶
0: Yeah. I mean, my pivotal moment, I pondered it, uh, was hearing Martha sing at a rehearsal space for the first time. I i immediately recognized the quality of her voice. I'd never heard anybody like it. And it, it sounded like it had all of the irritating overtones dialed out of it, or maybe they were never there to begin with. It was just pure. And I'd heard a lot of singers. I've been actively listening to music since i was you know eight or something (laughs) it's just part of my my life Uh, not professionally when i was that age but i was very curious about music all the time uh just growing up in the period i did with am radio and pop top 40 and the beatles and so on but the way i met martha uh is a funny story because i came into the band sideways uh but yeah i met her in L.A. at a rehearsal space off Hollywood Boulevard at the uh, invitation of my brother, Jeff, who was the guitar player in the original lineup that got signed to Capitol, the first album. He was a guitar player on the first album. The, the way it worked, I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning of time with me as a person, but I came out to LA to get in a band and get signed and make records. Uh, I grew up in Florida. So did my brother because you know he's my brother. Uh, he moved out to L.A. before me. And when he turned 27, he decided he wanted to join the motels. He had heard the band, a version of the band, play at some club in West Hollywood. And he it kind of reminded him of the Velvet Underground or some sort of artsy type band that he wanted to join. And there was no band. He had to track down Martha Davis through Dean Chamberlain, who was a guitar player, uh, in the version he heard of the band. And the band had broken up, and the way he found out about Dean is there's an ad that said, "Need a guitar player who plays so and so, and influences our uh, you know, television or uh, Velvet Underground and Motels." So my brother went, "Ah, oh, Motels. Well, <laughs> I want to join this. I want to talk to this guy." He didn't realize this guy was one of the guitar was the guitar player in the the Motels, uh, but the Motels no longer existed. Well, that led to him getting in contact with Martha. He started rehearsing with Martha her songs uh, with some other players that weren't very good, the bass player and the drummer. They just weren't good musicians. And one day he said, I want you to come down to this rehearsal space. I want you to play saxophone on one song. It's called Dressing Up. And if you can play da-da-da on a sax, which I could certainly do, (laughs) then just come down and play that. So I went to this rehearsal space and it was on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Cherokee, really sleazy part of Hollywood. It was in the basement of an adult theater called the Pussycat Theater, and it had been divided up into rehearsal spaces by an entrepreneur called Brendan Mullen. And we rehearsed in this space. or you know, Many bands were there, maybe six or seven. Uh, we split that space with the Go-Go's, actually. They were just starting out. And I go there, and I see Martha Davis, And there's my brother because he said, come on down. And she was a good looking gal. uh, And they had a nice PA. Somehow she had a really good PA. It was like an Altec Lansing PA. Uh, And she started singing and I was just flabbergasted. It just sounded beautiful. It's as simple as that. She had a beautiful voice. I'd never heard anybody sound like her. And I wasn't a big fan of Janis Joplin and bluesy. It's just a matter of taste. I like that clean sound. Uh, I listen to Steely Dan records. I like clean. <laughs> and I was just enthralled. And of course, the material was very interesting, too. So at that moment, I thought, if I'm going to play with a group, I'm certainly comfortable with my brother. He's my brother. Uh, and she's got a remarkable voice. And her music is interesting. And my brother had helped her rearrange or arrange these songs. She wrote them, but he arranged them or co-arranged them. And it it just was very interesting musically and uh, intriguing. And that was a moment that I thought I should play, work with these people. And, you know, I stayed with the band and I'm still with the band, one version of it, 40 plus years later. And uh, we made all those albums for Capitol. I hate to use that perfect storm phrase because it's about a storm, but it really is true. I guess that synchronicity is another way to put it. It just has to do with the randomness of life of like, why did my brother want to play with her? um, And why did I get involved? Or it was because of him and me and him were both working musicians at that time. We didn't play together in a band. And, uh, Then when I hooked up with Jeff, who hooked up with Martha, and me and Jeff cooperated musically. We were not those brothers you hear about. They're always fighting. Uh, I played keyboard and sax. He played guitar. I had deep respect for his talent, and he had respect for mine, even though I was his younger brother. And so the combination of that cooperation and just flat-out musical ability that me and him had and Martha's tremendous singing and lyrics, (laughs) her lyrics, Alone or interesting. And her uh, chord progressions and the way she played, she had that raw talent, but she didn't have the organizational capacity that my brother did. He was a very organized guy. And when that happened, and we told Martha, or she found out, like, this drummer that you have is not good. It might have been your former boyfriend or whatever, but he's not a good musician. And this bass player is not a good <laughs> musician. We started auditioning players and we got a good bass player. In Michael Goodrow, and then somewhere along the line Brian Glasscock showed up, who was a a very good drummer. And once you have a good rhythm section, uh, it it makes the band a real band. And so the combination of good rhythm section and very good songwriting and singing, and lyrics, and my brother's ability to arrange music, and he had eclectic taste too. Uh, Even though we grew up in the South, we were not bro rock. Dudes, I mean, we we listened to very interesting music. Dad was a professor. My our mother was a a amateur musician who had interesting musical taste. So we all brought a little something to the the situation, which happened to be in the right place at the right time when LA bands were getting signed.
1: While the motels had been around a while at this point and gone through a few different incarnations, it was this quintet. Martha Davis with Jeff and Marty Girard, plus Michael Goodrow on bass and Michael Glasscock on drums, that got signed to Capitol Records in
0: 1979. Well, it happened faster than even Jeff thought. And he was sort of the mastermind of the, the business side. We got to get out and play. We got to be slick. We got to, you know, just always play, play, play. And we, we got very good at our set list. Uh, we took it quite seriously. And we played a lot like there was a club called Madame Wong's, which was a uh, Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. And in there, they had a a tiny stage. They must've had a Polynesian kind of tiki bar review of dancers at one point. It had a little thatched uh, fake roof on top of it. And that's where we played a lot. I think we played 34 times there. And the police played there and the Knack played there. The police did a surprise gig. the Cats, all, all these many, many bands played there. So you could see and hear the motels uh, eight times in March, for example, of 79. And we played Gazzaris and Club 88 and uh, the Troubadour and the Whiskey opening for bigger bands. Uh, just these these small clubs. But record companies... A&R people were sniffing around these clubs because the Knack had made an album for like $16,000 that sold millions and was a number one album on the Billboard charts and they had a number one single. So it was nine months from when I first rehearsed with Jeff and Martha, or first went down there, which is August 78. And we got signed in May of 79. And it was a very fast process. Uh, A lot of albums capital was interested first a lot of record labels got interested late in the game but that was the nature of these labels they were all very competitive with one another so just because a a record label said they were interested in the 11th hour didn't really mean they were that interested so they didn't want to be left out (laughs) but capital was there first and uh they liked us and signed us it was uh shocked me (laughs) that it was so fast We made the album and we did the basic tracks. Well, we got signed on a Sunday and the Monday, and we'd played the Saturday before at so We got signed on a Sunday. We went to our attorney's house and signed the contract. Monday was Mother's Day. And then Tuesday at noon or so, we went into Sunset Sound and started recording our, basically recorded our live set. That was an album's worth of material. We might've added... Something we didn't play a lot that Martha had written, and the record came out, uh, didn't sell very well. First album was like a hundred, what 179 on the Billboard album chart, but it very gradually built. The second album sold a little better and had a, a semi hit with Danger. Uh, although the song on the first album went gold in Australia, uh, Total Control. So we had a actually, we had a Australian gold album on our first album, come to think of it. And then from there, it went on, sure. Uh, the third album had a top ten hit, Only the Lonely. Uh, and I wrote a song called Take the L that was on the third album, All for One. And then the fourth album had Suddenly Last Summer, which is probably that and Only the Lonely are certainly our best known songs because they both went to nine. And uh, got a lot of lot of radio play, but also MTV. We had videos for uh, Only the Lonely, Take the L, and Suddenly that did a huge amount of heavy lifting for promotional purposes uh, to get those songs out into the U.S. and, you know, probably the world to a certain extent. We we call it Black Friday. Yeah, it's true. It was Friday the 13th. It was a, you know how some bands break up because somebody dies or like they they get in huge fights or there's a, a, Legal shit. Well, none of that happened with the motels. We sort of died of some sort of industry apathy. Like we had peaked, I think, commercially with, uh, well, certainly with All for One and and Little Robbers. They both had a top 10 single. But what happened is it seemed increasingly obvious that Capitol Records was not particularly interested in anybody except Martha Davis. And subtle hints were being dropped that like you don't really need – A band, you write the songs, you sing them, you perform them. Uh, And this this was when people were just singers. Like, you know, it was was Pat Benatar. (laughs) It wasn't, (laughs) it was named after Pat Benatar or whoever, Linda Ronstadt. And we were, we got to where we were on half salary, I think. um, Because actually I was on salary all, the whole time I was in a band. It was a very good way to, you know, keep, even if you weren't making records or touring. But it, it turned out the last two weeks that we were recording, we were basically watching Richie Zito, who was a producer, and a guy, Gary Chang, who was an extremely good synthesizer player. He had a fair light. And Martha uh, start making tracks while we were, the rest of the band was watching. And instead of really cutting it clean uh, you know, earlier, we had to hang around for two weeks while that went down. And it was very uncomfortable all the way around. And yeah, she did. She, as each one of us showed up and we were essentially watching what these they were doing and not particip- participating yet. Uh, she just said, Hey, the band's breaking up. And uh, one by one, she said that. And it was a, quite a blow because it came out of nowhere. But it, it, the band had an arc at that time in pop history and it peaked. And then Martha put out a solo album that did relatively well. I think she did well in Australia better than anywhere. So the band basically dissolved. It was 1980s, uh, 1986. Maybe it was 87.
1: After the breakup of the motels, life didn't stop for Marty.
0: I had met this woman uh, when we were opening for Super Tramp uh, in this one of our last tours. And uh, I ended up marrying her. Uh, The band broke up, and I just, you know, I had to get, you got to understand, or it helps to understand that it's not a normal job being in a band. It's your identity, or or in many cases, it's really your whole thing. So when it's over, you're not quite sure. I didn't have a plan B, but um, I basically got married. Uh, I put together... Oh, I was recording some people in L.A. after that. Oh, I put together a band called Locomotive, and it was just all the R&B saxophone songs, because I'm a sax player, that I ever wanted to play. Junior Walker, King Curtis, and then 50s R&B, the Clovers, the Robins, the Coasters. And my brother was a guitarist, <laughs> Jeff. So he was a guitarist. I was a singer and sax player, and we played, we we played, you know, uh, Oh, geez. Uh, it's a jazz club, whatever it's called, down by uh, the ocean. And we, we played Malibu Inn and we just had a lot of fun. I think we had 50 songs and I put out an album, I put it out myself, which didn't do anything, but it was fun. And then I moved up to LA. I'm sorry, moved from LA up to Seattle. And I've been up here ever since. Uh, we played up here a lot over the years in the motels and I thought it was a beautiful place to live. And it is, uh, And then I did stuff up here, I recorded, I had a recording studio, uh, and then I gradually, 23 years later, Martha had moved up from Northern California to Portland area, Portland, Oregon, so it was easy to visit her. And she said, I want you to, hi, I said, hi, (laughs) remember me? Because we want to re-record Total Control so we have a master of it. And we can use it for commercials and stuff. And so we don't have to deal with capital because they own the master. So, of course, I could play the original sax solo because it was me to begin with. And we made it sound exactly like the original. And I just very gradually started working with Martha again. I'd visit her and do some recording. Then she said, we want you to play uh, the show. It's the Hollywood Bowl opening for the Go-Go's. And we'd like you to be in that version of the band. I went, of course. (laughs) So I did that, and then we played at L.A. County Fair where I, the bangles were headlining, and we opened for them. And I was sort of pulled in on special occasions because Martha already had a working band. And this was, you know, 11 years ago. Uh, and then eventually she said, well, you're playing all the parts that we can't do. You're playing all the synth parts because you were first you were on the originals, and you're playing the sax, so just be in the band. And um, I have ever since then. It was ever since 2011.
1: The scene in the late seventies in Los Angeles is notorious for its punk rock community. I had to ask Marty about that time and his impressions.
0: The community that I could recognize as maybe being a community were the bands that rehearsed at the mask. Now the mask was a shithole. I mean it was a terrible you know, it was just in the worst part of Hollywood <laughs> in a basement and it, it was all these little places were divided up. But you had you had these punk bands there. We were not a punk band. We were a pop new wave band. But the community was all these other people that were there. We were all pretty nice to each other. We were all scuffling in the same place. The Go-Go's were not signed. So in this place, you'd have uh, uh, the Cruzados rehearsing and the Plugs and the Screamers and Darby Crash of the Germs literally slept in the front office, which was just a room. And the Go-Go's and the Motels split that place. We rehearsed so much and were so serious about it. It wasn't really a lifestyle thing that somebody spray painted busy, busy motels on the door of our rehearsal space. <laughs> with This is spray can because we were just always in there working. Uh, I wasn't really, because I wasn't from LA and I'd moved there in 76, I didn't have this sense of an ongoing community. I just know that there were other bands that were kind of punky. Punk was really happening then. Uh, And it was when the knack came along that it suddenly you got into this pop music thing. At least that's how I saw it. So it was a community, but I wasn't really thinking along those lines. I just wanted to play music and I found a good situation. It looked like it had really serious promise, you know, as being a professional gig, like getting signed and making albums.
1: And of course, I wanted to hear more about the sharing of their rehearsal space with the Go-Go's
0: this space was about 10 by 14 feet we split the the Go Go's rehearsed till i don't know eight and then we came in about nine o'clock so our amps were on one side of of the place the drums and their amps and drums were on the other side but in the middle the small space between was the microphones and when we were rehearsing with that we just swivel the mics toward us when they were rehearsing they'd swivel it toward them uh and the, the funny thing is they were all wearing lipstick and they they would Sing so close to the mics that they just coated the front of these sure microphones with just pure lipstick. And after a while, when you sung into them, nothing would come out. So my brother took the screens off, went home and boiled them to get all that off. And then we had uh, foam covers put on it so that, you know, it wouldn't clog it up. But when we got signed to Capitol, the Go Go's were real happy for us and all. And they moved their amps to that side of the room because they thought it was the good luck side. Uh, And it obviously worked out for them.
1: (laughs) Thank you to Marty for taking the time to share your story. Marty still plays and tours with the motels, is the author of several books, and now lives in the great Pacific Northwest. And in a few weeks, we'll have an episode featuring Martha Davis herself. I also want to thank the band Jupe Jupe for creating our brand new theme song. You can find out more about their music at jupejupemusic.com. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel on 90s artists, Live Through That, wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please subscribe so that you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. We'll have more stories next week.